So we should be live now up on the old YouTube. And uh, it's nice to see the two of you this morning. Same. And yeah, Carib and Christine, lovely to chat with you always. And today we we had planned to talk. We were we talked about this prior to the whole affirmative action thing, Supreme Court thing. And then that came up and we were just chatting about that. So it seems like the perfect thing to spend a few moments addressing. And I know, uh, Carib, you posted some stuff on Twitter and have had some pretty, um, pretty detailed thoughts around this. So why don't you just start us off? Okay, yes. sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll share a little bit of, of the story. Um, when I was 17, I was really involved in theater. And um, in my small town, my director came to me and said, well, I recognize that you're talented, but I'm never going to cast you as a leading lady because you are black and Moses Lake, the town I'm from, isn't, um, isn't ready for a black leading lady. So that was the first thing that I heard. And I, and I had to swallow it because- I didn't know you were from Moses Lake. That's oh my gosh. Sorry about that. Can you That's still okay. see me? Okay. Yep. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So yes, I'm from Moses Lake, Washington. Um, and so that was the first thing that happened. And then after that happened, I um, was, they started a theater program in town and somebody came to me and they were doing as you like it. And their Rosalind quit. And he said, I really need you to be Rosalind. So I came and I did the thing and I was quite talented. I'm not going to lie. And so I, I, I did the thing and everybody was super excited except for the director. And he openly said, I just don't see Rosalind as a black woman. And, um, I said, well, I'm your, I'm what you've got. So th that was it. And so I played Rosalind. And when I was out in the park, the first night there was an older man and he got very angry and stood up and started to make a scene and was like, you know, Shakespeare isn't for black people. Hmm. And this is in uh, 96. So, so, um, you know, having to carry that as a 17 year old kid in your head while you're just like um, getting ready to perform, it was pretty heavy, but yeah, I did the show. Yeah, yeah, I did the show. And after I did the show, the man came up to me and he said in that, in that little bit of time, right? So in that like, what, three hour window, two and a half hour window, he it was able to change his mind hmm. because he sat with and watched and, and, you know, at first I'm sure he started off, I'm, I'm guessing that his emotions are pretty angry that his wife made him sit and watch. And by the end, he came to me and he said, I am, um, I'm really sorry. You did an excellent job. And hmm. that was something that went onto my, as therapist would say, onto your shelf, right? So that yes. it goes onto my, my shelf of, I can change people's minds just by being better than they expect. So that had been my whole thought. And then um, with the whole affirmative action and this, I've seen so many plays where like, I saw Maria played by a black woman in The Sound of Music. It made no sense. Like you're trying too hard. And then I think that it would make, I know how it would make me feel. I would feel like, sorry, that's my dog. I would feel like I was only hired because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. And I would stop 
the way that I had it, I had to, I had to accomplish things and I had to jump over hurdles and I had to be way more mature and responsible than, than a kid of 17 should have had to be. Mm. So, and yes, I did in one show because he demoted me in the middle of the show, the girl came back and she wanted her, her role back and he demoted me. And so I might have dropped my watering bucket when he made me the watering wench on him. (laughs) So, because there has to be a time that you fight back. There just has to be. But I think affirmative action is extremely damaging. And the other thing is, is that they're not looking at merit. I think when it first started, they were taking the very best. Yes. And saying, okay, we're going to take the very best and give them an opportunity. And I can agree with that, but that's not Mm. what we're doing now. Right now in Utah, there's a group called the Black Menaces, and they are very influential at BYU Hmm. because they're Black and they said so, you know, and that is not, that is not the right use of affirmative action. I can completely see taking two people and and measuring them up and going, okay, they have all of these same schools, they're equal in every way. And we have nobody who's of this color. So let's consider them. Mm-hmm. That's, but even then, you still have to live with knowing or you think in your head a little less of yourself. Did I get hired just because of this? In fact, when Christina and I did an um, interview, we had that conversation because she, yeah, she was given a promotion. And I said, do you think that that played a part in it considering the way the Antioch was at the time? Mm. So you have that doubt, but then you also know that other people always have that in the back of their head they are not looking at you as wow you must be amazing to be here they're looking at you as why did you get this Hmm. I think that's totally true and I mean it's this is maybe a little bit slightly off topic but you know we couldn't at one of the jobs I was at you know we had a black woman who was a receptionist and an administrative assistant she was always late. She was always kind of take, not taking it seriously. And then, you know, she said something that was very, um, I mean, she's a, she was like a subordinate. I was a director and she was saying something to me about, man, and I don't, it, it was all very, you know, oh, you know, Christine, I think you need to get in touch with your, your, your anger. And I think you need to, you know, process that. And Christine, I think you need, and she started telling me about these things and then made some kinds of comments about, you know, um, kind of accusing me in a way, I guess, of, or misinterpreting. I don't remember specifically. I wish I had a better memory of this, but all I remember thinking is that, okay, I'm going to talk to her boss because it wasn't appropriate to kind of attack me that way in a a meeting um, with other directors, other people. I mean, it was extremely, you know, I don't, not even patronizing. I don't even think that's the word. It was just demoralizing me. So I would talk to the boss and the boss says, well, but she's black. We can't do anything about it. Wow. Just came right out and said, that. oh yeah, there was no, and, and I took that to the board. I mean, I, I, I went pretty far with some of the things that she, you know, and then we had this Latino woman and she was reporting to me and I was telling my boss, you know, and she's asked me how she was doing. I said, she's, you know, she's okay, but you know, she's sort of late all the time and I'm having a hard time getting her to like show up just to be on time and present. And she goes, 
Christine, do you think that that's because you have a, you know, you believe the stereotype that all Latina people show up late to work? I was like, what? You're the one. I think all this is about you, right? So it was very interesting. So because of that, I wasn't able to say anything to her about the lateness. Hmm. So I was in that environment long before I was actually a professor. And somehow, I mean, in the midst of all of this, you know, critical social justice stuff and leaving and all these different things that have happened since then, I sort of forgot that until this moment, this has been brewing for a very, very long time. There are very many years where there was a, you can't say that you don't want to get sued. Oh, gee, if we have two people that are exactly the same, let's pick the person of color, you know, whether that's right or wrong or not, those things are factored in. And so that's been going on forever. I mean, I wasn't even able to write up somebody, you know, who was blatantly disrespectful to me. Um, I I like that you use the term brewing because that's really what they're doing. They are teaching people to be far more racist. Some of the people who've come out in, um, support of affirmative action or anti the Supreme Court's decision, um, they they do sow that brewing. They yes. do have just a, a pervade, prevalent sense of resentment. They're just, mm. um, I, I saw Mich- Michelle Obama's post and uh, that one always bothers me because I'm sitting there going, you have a lot of privilege, lady. Mm. You have a lot of privilege. And when the privileged people look at the other people and tell them, well, you might as well basically give up because without these aids, you're never going to succeed. Yes. That mm-hmm. is, that That's is so really disgusting. patronizing. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting what you said, Carib, about um, the, the stigma of being a, basically like a diversity hire or somebody who was was included just because of affirmative action I don't know if I've ever been in a situation where I've thought about that at all I've never looked at anybody and thought you're just here because of this I mean maybe teachers at Antioch actually now that I think (laughs) about it but um I've never thought that in in a school maybe it's because I've never been involved in anything that was super elite where there was a lot of competition to to do xyz you know what I did it I, I admitted people because they were people of color. I remember admitting somebody who was, I admitted a black guy who couldn't spell. I mean, he couldn't put a complete sentence together. I read his essay. I admitted him because he was black for sure. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to show, you know, the, um, while I was, um, I guess somewhat, um, I don't want to say I was captured. Well, maybe I was captured, but whatever the case, I was trying to be a good little, I was trying to be a good little righteous you know, do the right thing, liberal Democrat. And um, yes, of course we need mm. to elevate these people. Um, and I did it many times. He's the one that I remember the most because he was the least qualified out of all of the ones that I admitted that I thought shouldn't have been, but I did because they were not white. And see, well, that doesn't elevate anyone. No, nope. it because sure doesn't. in the end, when they get into a job that they can't He's gonna fail. Well, the thing that, that really, like the, the thing that you said about how it feels to be someone who, who wonders if they've been stigmatized as a diversity um, hire or, or, or applicant or select selection or whatever. Um, I've, I've thought the, uh, the other side of it is that it, if you are making a determination about somebody's inclusion, just based on one demographic category, you're 
not looking at all of the aspects of of how people in how people come to be in the position that they're in what are the other setbacks that a person might have experienced why are you saying that just based on this one aspect of this person's demographics are they do they need a boost why why is that you're not looking at the full range there could be just like you gave the example of the obamas those kids are super wealthy they don't need a hand up based on race because they've got such a hand up based on wealth already class has already given them oh yeah the position that they're in and if you make the argument well most minorities are you know or minorities are are more highly represented in the lower income bracket so if we help minorities we're helping low income people why not just help low income people why not base affirmative action on on socioeconomic status rather than on I think this race it's a good point because I have to say I'm Middle Eastern and according to the census you know I'm required to mark down that I'm Caucasian by the way or white mm. when I don't have when I have a limited option of you know rate you know demographic information there's only four or five you know options for for race or ethnicity and then I kind of poked around a little bit and come to find that Middle Eastern people or women, Middle Easterners, do not make up a big enough portion to be considered a minority in this country because um, there's not enough of them to make up what a minority minority class would be, which would be <laughs> oppressed and suffers in the wake of the dominant class and the dominant culture and the dominant race. You're too so, much of a minority to be a minority. Correct. What does that even mean? I have no idea. So for me, all of that, so I don't feel that I had been as a woman maybe, but I didn't benefit in any other real significant way. They don't care to represent my kind or my right. people is what they're basically saying. They don't care to do that. It's no, not that important. Right. And so that messed with me a little bit. And I think it was at that moment, and this was when Obama was in office and I didn't like him. I'm already going to just say it. But that was when that started happening is when I think I became much more hyper aware that this was very problematic, what we were doing here. And um, what happens to all of the people that are Middle Eastern that have very dark skin and look black? What about them? They don't get to count. What about the Sudanese? They're not going to get to count. And those people, if you guys are familiar with, you know, that part of the world, you can have some few very, very dark folks that look black that have black hair. Okay. So they don't get to check that box though. Their mm -hmm. box is either other, which other means nothing. They just kind of dismiss that or they have to check the Caucasian box. I, it, mm -hmm. it, it's mortifying. I mean, I just, I can't wrap my mind around it. Even after all this time, we don't represent a, a group that's significant enough to have been oppressed to have any kind of representation. So you're saying that even if you do follow the logic of affirmative action, you're leaving people out regardless. That's intentional. That's mm -hmm. my point. That, that's You're completely intentional out. right now. Right now, the goal is to completely eradicate yes. um, the conservative Christian viewpoint. So you have yes. to go to school and you have to 100% affirm. That was the thing that I was sharing with you guys about Title IX. You have yes. to affirm, you have to celebrate. It's no longer about just acceptance, which I'm fine with okay. just acceptance. Will you, right? will you lay that out and, and introduce that, that idea? Because- I don't, yeah. I didn't know what you were talking about when you first mentioned that earlier. Okay, sure. So 
Title IX used to be about, I think it was 27 words. And it's a sex but, discrimination. So the Right. But, and okay. now they've included gender and anything mm-hmm. that's part of the queer community as acceptance. So now what they've done, and there was just um there was just a presentation by the um NEA of supporting queer kids pride thing going on. And what they've done is they've empowered the kids to tattle in 300 pages. There's about 300 pages that they've added to title nine of Mm -hmm. all of the ways that you can be discriminated against. So they've made it extremely uncomfortable. So um, Miguel, is it Cardona? I think it's Cardona. And he is the secretary Mm -hmm. of education. And he just recently said that tolerance is not the end goal. In fact, that's the very bare minimum. We want Mm -hmm. to celebrate every single day. So if a kid so wants what, LGBT, school, LGBTQ, yeah, okay. they want to celebrate and it really is the queer community. So one thing that's very interesting is that the gay straight alliance, which as it used to be called the GSA has changed to the gender and sexualities club. So what? Oh my we gosh. So they, taking... they kept the GSA. They kept it. Yes. Okay. Wow. And so what they did okay. was they started off with, we just want people to be kind and to look out for people bullying and it's okay to be gay or to be straight. Now we've seen that on Twitter recently, cis, and it absolutely is a, is a slur at this point. It absolutely is a situation of, you know, you're a het cis person. I don't respect you. Um, het so cis, we're teaching so our children. Cis? heterosexual cisgender yes and and our kids will say this so our our 14 year olds um more the girls than the boys but my goodness if they're attacking you online that's that's the first thing that they come for um so they're being taught to hate in the exact same way that Mao taught children to hate that Stalin taught children to hate and that is extremely extremely dangerous you and can't overstate that enough, honestly, right. because people think that it's like that this is a fringe theory or they think it's some fringe belief system. But when you take a look around at some of the tactics, the, the goal is the same. The way that they're moving to get to that goal is what's different because of what they have access to and what is available to them now that wasn't 10 years ago, 100 years ago, et cetera. And these kids are being celebrated. So there was a girl and her name was Hildy. And I believe she's an eighth grader. Well, I'm sorry. See, it's it's already confusing. There there is a boy who identifies as a girl whose name is Hildy. Oh, wow. Okay. And Hildy um, goes to school and she said that I have had to report so many people all year. That's like my full-time, that's what my education is. And when somebody dead names her, they are sent, and these are eighth grade kids. So if somebody ident- um, dead names this person, I can't believe this. Like I have these principles oh of gosh. I'm not going to use pronouns. I'm not going to do these things. But when you're looking at Hildy, Hildy, Hildy reminds me of Veruca Salt. Yeah, Big, giant curls like, and oh, very yeah. much like, God. And, she, and she talks to the principal and she's like, well, I don't respect any hit Jess or hit, um, hit cis, cis, cis man cis. um but 
he's pretty cool. And so like whenever somebody does something to me, they get in school detention and I just walk up to him and well, give him a high five. Don't you remember when else they were telling you to report? Oh They're telling you to report on people that weren't vaccinated. Yes. They were telling you to report on your parents if they were not being inclusive of whatever, whatever. That is very similar to what was happening to the Jews. Yes. Yes. During World War II or prior to when when well in China mm-hmm. in China the kids would report so much that there's a story on YouTube about a, a young man who reported on his parents and thought he did the right thing and yep. they walked his mom in front of him and shot. Her. I heard this one. That one I shot actually her heard. in yes. front of them. Yes. Now now let's look at. I wish I had pictures of it, but if we look at some of the memes that our kids are seeing. Yep. They're seeing the one with the lighter, the the one with the lighter that says burn the system down. Oh, wow. They are very seeing, aggressive. There's, there's this one that I saw recently because I've got a teenager. And so um, the meme says we can get along or we can disagree and still be friends does not apply to. And then it has a list of all of the things it doesn't apply to. So it doesn't mm-hmm. reply to if you're a homophobe, if you're a Christian, if you're um, transphobe, if you're any of these things that we cannot still get along. So we're literally teaching our children that intolerance is completely acceptable if people don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. That is what we're teaching our kids. Christian another- is on that list. I'm still stuck on that. So- Yes. So here's the thing. If you are a postmodern Christian, if you are a Christian who uses the name of Christ, but the Bible is, is uncomfortable for you, yeah, then you're okay. Hmm. But if you are a Christian who follows biblical principles, it's absolutely okay to hate you. And so <laughs> there's another one that's this like an anime. Comical. Yeah. Well, there's an anime where this, this young girl is pushing another girl in a um, wheelchair and she pushes her off a cliff and this is supposed to be cute with propaganda I was just in DC last uh, two weeks ago last week and um so many of the museums are captured so well, you go you to the museum showed and us Carrie, yeah. you sh- maybe, maybe share a bit about that because that yeah. was that was horrifying these are museums that are capturing you know american history so this is being written in the history books this is documented this is part of our the permanent record of our country going forward and what you found can you just tell us about that for just a, a second because yeah well one of them was when i saw in, it. in the in the transportation room of the museum of history it's trains and cars and everything. But then the big mural on the outside says protect trans rights and trans um, sort of, it, it talks about boys in the girls' bathrooms that nobody should feel that Wait, at the, the transportation? Restroom. At the transportation. So, so they changed it oh to gosh. transportation. Yep. Where there's a room that is fully about protecting our democracy. And it talks about, for kids, it talks about, how important it is to vote for somebody who looks like you or who shares your gender. So this is thousands of kids going in and they're only hearing one point of view. Didn't they also have something about MAGA in there? So that was yes. terrorist group, right? So, so that was, that was an, um, a child. They, they had a competition and the kids did their tribe board reports like they always do. And this girl did how MAGA and Hitler 
are the same. So fashion. Oh, okay. And so it had the MAGA hat and, but she was chosen out of her state. She was from New Mexico and she was chosen out of her state. And my husband just walked up to her and said, you know, this is an opinion rather than a fact. Right. And she goes, I get my facts from, or I get my facts from approved sources. And he tried to talk to her and she said, look, I don't have to listen to you just because you're a heterosexual man who's older than me. This is the way our kids are talking. This is what they are being taught and being empowered to do. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, it's, I don't have children and that's something that, you know, was important to me at one point in my life, but there is a big sense of relief I have for having kids that aren't in school because I couldn't actually put them in school. They would be homeschooled if I had children that were school-aged at this point in my life, if I had the means to do that, because um, the toxicity, the poison, these and these kids are, are going to be the decision makers coming up here in the next couple of decades. So what is that going to look like for everybody else? So mm -hmm. that's why without kids, I have focused on kids so much as I have, even though I don't have any of my own, because I do believe that these are I don't believe it. It's the truth. These are the people that are going to be running this country. And this is the main focus of our schools. So our schools are lying and they're saying that school looks the same as it did 30 years ago. And of course they're doing that because mm -hmm. I believe it was, I am afraid to say the number, but I know it was billions of dollars in pre-K education. And it came in through relief funds. Mm -hmm. So then there's the ESSA and other things that have come in that are the resources are specifically to get children to follow this new querying right. of, and there, there are posters in schools. Well, and, and I was just here. having this conversation. I was a part of this discussion with a parent who is trying to decide whether to pull his kids out of school or, or, or try to work with the school and fight back against some of the stuff in the school. And part of, of his logic was that he has he feels like he can counter this stuff at home because he has a really he's very aware of it and is able to keep a good dialogue with his own kids so he's able to keep them from being he you know he thinks he's able to balance the indoctrination and what i'm thinking is but they're still going to school every day with a cohort of people who even if you are able to keep their minds open they're going to be very influenced by their peers and their peer set is going to be very influenced by all of this. And do you really want your kids growing through that, growing up with that cohort? Or is it better that we just, we need to purge our kids from these schools. We need to pull yes. all of our kids out you of know, these schools. I think it's true because I'll tell you, you know, my sister's a teacher. I've mentioned this before and, you know, this stuff didn't really, you know, she lives in a very conservative area and it's, you know, Devin Nunez's old district, right? So everybody there is extremely, you know, and, and it's like 45% Latino. Okay. Very conservative uh, group. So, um, you know, she said to me the other day, she said, thank God, I am relieved that my kids um, made it through the K through 12, the last ones on his going on to his senior year. And they escaped, you know, and they're, they're, they're pretty well knowledge, you know, the, the, the eldest has, my nephew has some pretty good knowledge about what all of this is and what it means and why it's problematic. And she was saying that to me the other day. And the funny thing about that is, you know, two years ago, she was also saying this stuff will never hit our County. We're protected. We're safe. It's super conservative. We're okay. We're going to be fine. And now she knows 
what all the, she doesn't even know all the details. She knows scratching the surface here. And now it's like the fury and the anger. And it's like, well, this is what I've been telling you for two years. Nowhere is safe. Nowhere. So yes, get your kids through the school. They're done. That's fabulous. But if they weren't, and they were early on in nowhere is safe, where are you going to put them? Mm -hmm. I don't think you can put them anywhere other than at home. I mean, well, and, and it's, it's, we, we think that, you know, as you said, Kara, it has gotten a lot worse. Schools are not the way that they were 30 years ago, but this has been going on for longer than I realized when I started talking with my, my younger daughter, she's 25. Now I started talking with her about some of these issues, you know, fairly recently. And like, how, how much did you experience this when you were in school? They got the genderbred man. She's 25. They got the genderbred man when she was in high school. That's no, that's like 10 years ago. Right. That was going on then. I didn't know that it, it, it it was, no, it was, I I, I mean, I think 20, 30 years, probably 30 years is probably accurate. But when did they start with this stuff? I mean, like the really hard push for this, this gender propaganda. Well, yep. Yesterday, last night I was at a meeting and there was a woman who just retired from school because she refuses to teach this. And next month, all I'm doing is featuring people who have, um, just featuring people with homeschool, all the different, Mm -hmm. different ways. And she's one of the people that I want to talk to. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that she said was that she recognized it. Her son is an adult now and she recognized it. So she pulled him out of school. And one of the most important things that we have to do if we choose to homeschool is teach our kids both sides. So the other day I was in a bookstore and I picked up um, Marx's essays. Because the thing is, is that if we don't teach our kids, if we don't teach them about race, if we don't teach them about Marxism, if we don't teach them about the 1619 project, somebody else will. And then they will say, see, your parents are bigoted and backwards and that's why you don't know. So that's a good point. And there's no way that in the six hours of school that a child is going to get both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. No, there's just not, mm-hmm. they, they, they can't do it and they don't want to, they so want our the parent to has stupid. to do. So that, and that's something that I've said, I think before that, well, if you can't pull your kids out, then maybe what you do is a counter act type of thing where they learn all that junk at school. Fine. You come home and then you do a, okay, here's another point of view or way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And you try to do it in pods where you have groups of kids right than just one. I think, I think that pressure to belong and to, to have kind of a dissenting opinion or viewpoint is too much to bear for some children at a certain age, which is normal developmentally, Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. So you look at it and say, okay, you have a bunch of kids then, and you form a pod of these kids, a group where then they don't feel that they're alone, that they know that there are other kids who believe Mm -hmm. that. And perhaps they can even have conversations out on the schoolyard with some of the other kids who aren't in their pod. And that might be something that isn't so threatening, but can be very educational. That's, that's where I think that you can do, if you can do both. We're doing a Socratic seminar. So we're going to do history that is um, teaching people to be patriotic, but also that digs in. So my son, um, he's very interested in spies and espionage and things like that. And so <laughs> he's going to play Nathan Hale for three days at a festival. Oh, wow. But then because I, um, and he has to write his whole, he has to write the whole 20 minute presentation and has to really like find all the facts. And so my idea was, well, I'll start a history fair. I'll get as many teenagers as I can to learn about whoever they want to in history 
but they have to know about both parts. So if they think that, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is wonderful, mm-hmm. okay, what did she believe? What was everything that she believed? And now you have to debate George Washington and have this conversation with them. And how can we make this fun, engaging, because the kids have to buy in. But then when I was talking to this group of kids about it, they got so excited that they started like making lists of friends that they could invite. And then I'm thinking, well, we do it after school so that the kids who are normally in school till three o'clock can come. And then if we create something so wonderful that they, this is how we win. We win only by changing the culture. Mm -hmm. So that's a beautiful, I mean, that's such a beautiful idea. It's so creative and engaging. I I love that. And I think, and you, I think you said this to us before Carrie too offline is that we have to replace, we can't, we're, we're, we've, we've got to replace this with something. It yes. can't just be us saying, okay, this is wrong, not the way to go, et cetera. We need to have a replacement and something that actually works. We have to have to solutions that are so much solution. better. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read two comments. One gin bottle says, Leslie, it started to explode in about 1970. It reached various watersheds in the ensuing years. And that, you know, when I look back, mm-hmm over and I agree that that this was the groundwork was being laid but also there is there has been a a sharp escalation and that's kind that's what I'm wondering about is when did this escalate because all the three of us we're all about the same age we're all mid-40s yep and this wasn't I mean sex ed when I when I was a kid was totally different than this we we had some discussions about tolerance probably but i don't remember that being involved in sex ed at all i mean there was the general that was the general tone of being taught to socialize and be around other people but it wasn't there wasn't I'm anything specific you, about it was this. obama's term that started to mm-hmm. throw this off the edge off the cliff i think that his his presidency created so much racial division it was one of the, that to me, okay, and I'm not a historian, so I'm just going to speak as a lay person, then my experience was that the power of race or the racial wars, the race wars, the identity wars mm-hmm. were fueled by his administration. Things that were going mm-hmm. on that were so divisive, right? And how did he get there? Well, he was installed obviously by, you know, the, 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 the cult party of the Democrat, excuse me, sorry for anybody that's Democrat, it's fine. But what I'm trying to say is that that's where I think that came in. That's very much an agenda. And I think when he came into office and was supposed to unify, the division grew, then you want to throw Trump into the mix after that, then that sparked an even bigger divide, not because Trump did or didn't do something or not. It was because how he was framed and looked at by this group of people that were already on fire about all of these culture, you know, all of these race wars that were going on and felt completely justified to say, hell no, I'm going to dismantle the system. So in my opinion, I would say around 2012, 2011. Okay. And then I think it went over the cliff in 2016. That's my, that, that, that's where I think it, it, it was, it was on fire and it was fast and it was hard. And I do believe that it was political. All of this is politically based anyhow. And I do believe that it started with Obama's administration injecting hate into the system in a way that I had never experienced before. I, I don't that, feel that it was this way with the Clinton family. So that would have been what, 20, 2008? Huh. Yeah. 
And then they're okay. criminals or the Clintons are criminals. I'm not going to sit here and defend them, but where, where, if we're talking about where I felt it actually mm-hmm. go over the edge, that's what I would say. Because even when nine 11 happened in 2001, to me, there was, it, there was an anti, well, there was an anti-Middle Eastern sentiment, anti-Muslim sentiment, I guess you could say for sure. But there was more of a coming together. I remember these vigils that they were having all over Los Angeles of all places that were, you know, to honor the firefighters and the people who, the cops and the, you know, the, the people who went and were trying to the military, the people who were going in there and trying to save and help and, and all this kind of stuff. And there was a sense of unity where we kind of all came together on, on this common enemy, which wasn't about being a certain color. It was about a radical way of thinking. I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that they that they didn't have their own reasons for invading, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. I, I understand that, but I think culturally, if we're looking at our society, that felt more unifying than it mm. did divisive. So, cut to 2008, maybe wherever that jump was, mm. that was, in my opinion, that incoming administration, right? Wasn't Obama after that? I think so. Yeah, it was yeah. 2008. Yeah, yeah, 2008. So, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. Where that's yes. where you started to feel it. Correct. And I, so, I guess there's lots of analysis that could be done on how, and you know, there has been lots of good analysis. Somebody mentioned James Lindsay. There's lots of people who are talking yeah. about where exactly and who and how this was orchestrated. But I guess what I'm most interested in is when you started to feel it, when it started to become, you know, above the Lyman and, like super and palpable. really, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I have, t- I have two things, one in, in the <clears> 1930s for the African-American social justice replaced biblical justice. So it was always brewing. And the, the church that Barack Obama went to famously, the pastor said, not God bless America, God damn America. Oh, for so, so <laughs> that's a lot of people who believe that. And that's kind of what we're living now. But in the early 2000s, I worked for a theater company, um, and we went to schools and taught children to pre- um, protect themselves from sexual abuse. And we had a very clear, we were, we were taught by a police officer the way in which to approach it that did not suggest sexual things to children. Um, and it, but at the same time, it would say, um, this person wants to look at pictures in, in this book with you and it has naked people in it. And we had to say those very specific words. Mm. We couldn't say what they were doing, nothing else, just, and then you were just supposed to say, no, get away to a safe place. Okay. Today, those books way worse than those books, books that, that, oh, depict, yeah. that, that depict an older man walking with a younger man in photos are in our schools. So something drastically changed there. And I do think that Obama played a part, but I also think that Obama coming into office, yes, he was already fueled by thing, by the ideas of his church, the ideas that are rampant today, but it also brought to the forefront people who were racist on both sides. Yeah. You had people who had low expectations and then you had people who absolutely did not want a black president. Yes. I remember saying I would be fine with a black president if these were not his values. Yes. But for me his values. And that's what I always tell people. I don't, I don't vote based on color, nor do I vote on what's between their legs. Neither one of those things matter to me in whether or not somebody like who has my values, who wants to lift people up Mm -hmm. instead of pass out cell phones and tell them that they're victims. 
that is what I couldn't stand about him also. There was a moment there where I said, okay, we've, we're electing a black president. This is a huge leap forward. Okay, so let me give this a chance. Okay, let's, let's, let's see what can happen here that can actually be good. And then I found that the only thing that came out of it was the free cell. And I was working with the homeless at mm. this time. So the free cell phones and the, and the free, you know, I, whatever it was you mentioned, Carrie, that, that they were handing out at the time. But the division that was so, that that part to me, and then I started to see that Obamacare came along. And who did Obamacare help? I ended up thousands of dollars in medical debts, which I've had for so many years. Which, by the way, I was a full time gainfully employed, working two jobs. Right, so I worked. I had a private practice, and I did a day job full time. There were points in time where I had three, and I could barely afford my own medical bills. I saw the writing on the wall as to why this was happening who was being pulled up, who was being pulled down and the reason for it. And it was very clear that the erasing of the middle class has been a dream, you know, the, of the globalist agenda, which is infiltrating here for decades ago. I mean, we stopped saying God in the Pledge of Allegiance. I think when I was, we didn't at my school because I went to a Catholic school but the public schools in the Bay Area stopped using God hmm. in the Pledge of Allegiance in the 80s. It was... Oh no, we need to separate, you know, church and state kind of thing, but mm -hmm. it wasn't the word God and the Pledge of Allegiance that was going to be the problem. <laughs> that, that wasn't going to solve anything, but it was making a statement that was very bold and very much telling exactly where we were going to go next. And that was, I think, a bit scary, but him to, I don't think I understood and I didn't have the savvy enough to know that back then. I just knew as a child, it, it was wrong. To me, it felt wrong. Why would we do this with our flag and our country? when this is supposed to be something we're proud of and now we're not saying it at all or we're taking out those words again at a catholic school no we handled the flag in a certain way we folded it the way it was supposed to be folded and it was a great honor to be chosen to actually put the flag up for the school day and take it down mm -hmm. and so we had a different experience but my little friends that were at the public schools had a very different feeling about all that so it was a kind of interesting moment where i saw something happening when i was a kid but as an adult, okay, that's kind of where I felt um, that the divides, that the divides came. I never felt part of this country, if that makes sense. When Obama was in office, I did not feel, I can't, this sounds so personal and kind of cheese ball, but I'm just going to say it. I didn't feel that I was included in hmm. this group of citizens that were supposed to be American loving and care about our country. I didn't feel like I, I didn't feel that was for me. I felt that's like I was yeah. in, in, in some way, an enemy of the state in, in the mm. way in which it was presented. Now, is that an intuitive feeling I got or what was it? Something mm. like that, but maybe it was actually what he was saying directly. So yeah, it was thrilling to have a black president. And I thought that was a great leap forward. But when the agenda was presented, then to me, it was just this, it, it, it was just pushing forward something else. Now you have a black person that's pushing forward, trying to capture the minorities and the blacks to come on board with whatever the agenda was just for the fact that he's black and the fact yeah. that right i had I such rose-colored glasses on about obama i i had a different experience with the bush years and i really didn't i, mm -hmm. I the the whole 9 11 thing and the way that that was being um the way that it was clearly benefiting some really uh, yes. significant moneyed interests. The whole thing stunk to high heaven to me. I couldn't stand Bush. And I thought the whole, the way that we went to, into that war was horrifying to me. And that was kind of a, a big political wake up call to me in my early twenties. And when 
Obama came up around, I really had rose colored glasses. All he was, was the opposite of Bush. And I was delighted and, and thrilled. And, and it took a long time to see that there were some significant problems with his presidency. And I think for me, it was the drones, the drone strikes was really when I started to wake up to that, but I didn't see the social stuff. Even then, I still didn't see the social stuff. See, I had people who came up during his time. That was the The Patriot Act was before that. It was Bush. Yeah. Oh, it was Bush. The spying on the cell phones. Was that Bush or was that Obama where they started to be able to have access? That was, that was Bush. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. Because that was the way we were going to fight terrorism, quote unquote. Right. I had people who would come to me or they, they would send me messages and they would say, I'm voting with you in mind. So <laughs> what does I that knew, mean? <laughs> you know, because Obama and I were both mixed race. Right. Right. And so people thought, you know, oh, I'm voting with you, you in mind. And I'm like, this is kind of disgusting. Like, I, I don't want to be seen like the second that you think of somebody, you, you think of me, oh, because I've got this one friend and she's of color. That is not how I want to be seen. And at first, when I first heard Obama speak, I thought, wow, this is amazing. And then immediately I heard this, I, I heard the division hmm. and it, I've always wanted, it was the same thing. Okay. This is cheesy, but like my, my nemesis, my, my fake nemesis is Meghan Markle. Oh, <laughs> and, and I always just like wanted these people to do amazing things and be wonderful people and to unite us because I look at the world and I see, I see white people and I see black people and I just see people. So I, I'm like, can we just like, if anybody should have an acceptance and be able to see that people on either side of the fence are, are good or bad, or all of us are a little bit of all of it, it should be these people. So they should be able to unite us. Mm -hmm. And it is always, always, always the white man, the white man keeping me down we and i'm can't unite go, us. you live in martha's vineyard and you live in a palace that's right so they unite us there's, there's too white much man. money to be made in yeah. keeping the division it's like you yes. said leslie what was the whole purpose of invading the purpose of of, of invading right oh they have weapons of mass destruction then they find that there's absolutely nothing yeah. because they wanted mm-hmm. to take out saddam hussein for whatever finance. and wars make people very very wealthy and they make countries very very wealthy we made s- killings off of funding both sides of every war that we've ever been a part of we well, somebody we've, did yeah absolutely mm-hmm. you know contractors and all of this kind of shit and, and stuff and we we end up funding both so there there i think it took me a long time to realize that that's actually not what they want for us they actually don't want a, a cohesive and peaceful and and prosperity for the people because they don't win in that scenario you don't become a multi-billionaire there were right. I, more billionaires made in 2021 i guess the covid year 2020 2021 than there were in the entire world altogether there were more billionaires made off of that well let's look at where the funds came from who ended up making money off all those masks that got sent everywhere? Who ended up making the big box stores that were making a killing, taking away profits from small mom and pop shops that were unessential or what non-essential. Right. So, I mean, all of these crises yeah. are, are ways to make 
people wealthy. And Mm -hmm. I think that is the piece of it. That's been the missing puzzle for me this entire time Mm -hmm. is that that was the motivation all along. You look behind the curtain and it's like, oh, wow. Now all of these people are lining their pockets. We have to keep funding wars. We have Mm -hmm. to keep getting involved in conflict and chaos. We have to start culture wars and identity war. When I was in, you know, I had a black studies professor when I was at UC Santa Barbara, those were my first two years of college. And then I went to USC which interestingly enough, Kara, back to kind of something you said earlier, USC, I was told I would never be an, an anchor on television, which is what I wanted as, as a journalist because of the color of my skin and because I had curly hair, I needed to straighten it and try to look more white, quote unquote, wow. fascinating. So I dropped, the, I dropped my major because of that. That's that, that I couldn't stand. You need to look more white. You need to straighten. I ended up straightening my hair later in life anyway, but that at that time, right? So um, interestingly enough, that was, that was an experience I had that heavily weighed on my decision and changed the course of the things I, I, I did. And I lost my train of thought now about what, what, what I, what well, I was you saying, saying at UC Santa Barbara, your black, oh, my black professor. studies professor said, you know, we, we talked about the twenties and the 1910s even, and, you know, he was really the only black professor I've ever had or professor that other than, you know, any, anything other than white that ever said, the, the, the real war, the real, the, the real division was between the poor and, 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 and the working class poor and the, mm-hmm. you know, the elites. And when you saw that the working class, poor whites and the working class, poor blacks started to unite and rise up against the establishment and against the institution, they needed to infuse something to separate them. So that's where you have, it doesn't matter that you're poor and white, you're still better because you're not black. Mm-hmm. So that right. when that yeah. group that had become so powerful, pitting them against each other, because if they, yes. unite, that's when, so that's what they yeah. mean to do. They never, they never mean to actually unite you. They never mean to have all of, they mean to consolidate power. They mean right. to increase mm-hmm. their own wealth and they mean to continue to keep us in conflict because that's where people become very wealthy. And I honestly, that was very eye-opening and that, and that I was learned a strategy in that was used very effectively in the antebellum yes. period yes in the south uh yes. to pit poor whites and poor blacks against each other yes mm-hmm. and you saw these amazing photos that he would pull out where you'd just see these guys that were working these you know kind of working class jobs and whites and blacks and they were all together hanging out eating lunch and mm-hmm. chatting and smoking and whatever they were doing and there was some just beautiful you know you just saw those that that and you could just see them laughing and kind of connecting in these photos, a still picture, you know, um, that still is marked in my mind. I still remember what it looked like because that was the first time that I had anybody who was educated enough <laughs> to be able to say to us straight up, listen, this is all completely injected into the system purposefully. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to be careful with that because then we get into Marxist original Marx's original ideas. Sure. Right. So we, we can get into this. Sure. Um, sure. Because it is true. It is true that the problem is class. It is true that we could solve the problems supposedly um, of going into our schools and only keeping the elites educated or whatever else um, by looking at class and by looking at income. Yes. So we have to be careful that we don't feed into that other part of Marxism, yes, yes. which is always to resent, mm-hmm. always to hate, and yes, ultimately yes. to destroy and eradicate other people. Yes. Like if we're going to move forward in solutions, then we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. We need to go um, 
here are these people, they are equally compatible in all of these areas. Now we can look at something else. Yes. Now, now we can look at another, another aspect of, of who they are to make sure that we're being more equal, more fair and inviting and bringing these solutions. Yes. But when we go to the bottom of the barrel, when we select people who cannot read or write and mm-hmm. put them at Harvard and then, we, and then worse, we graduate them because we need those numbers. So then they're going out into the professional field and, and who knows what they're doing, but I do not want a doctor who was hired solely based on the color of their skin or their gender working on me. What about United Airlines? Doctor. Correct. You know, I just don't want somebody who's solely brought in for those reasons. Well, United Airlines made a commitment to to hire 50% of all the new pilots were going to be black women. It had nothing to do with what they did in flight. It reminds me of that. Do I want somebody who got a C minus? Okay, in flight school, flying me because she's a black woman, or do I want a white male who's an asshole, excuse me, who's a big jerk, and but he knows how to fly the plane? Give me the jerk who knows how to fly the plane because I don't need to be your friend. I need you to get me from point A to point B. So I really don't care about that. Now, if you're a jerk and you're my doctor, that's a different story. That's a different purpose, but we can't, this whole lumping everything together is sort of completely. I mean, it's a problem. It's a, it's a major problem. Do I want somebody who is going to be a jerk? Who is my therapist? No. Do I want somebody who's my therapist who has empathy? And even if they're less educated than a psychologist in their master's level, well, I might be biased. I'm a master's level. That's fine with me too. Um, because I think that they can be wonderful. So again, it's sort of like, do you care whether your pilot is a black woman, because you're seeing black women flying, or do you care that you make it to your location safely? Do you mm-hmm. care that somebody has a doctorate or do you care that they have more compassion and they understand you and they have, you know, a master's and they're your therapist. So you, it, all of this has to be put in some kind of a context and it's not, right. it's these sweeping overall kind of policies, this umbrella, that's a huge problem because I, None of us want a doctor who barely eked through medical school, give, work, work, you know, as a neurosurgeon working on your brain. I mean, yeah. I went to some of the most egotistical doctors you've ever seen in your life to have neck surgery. And I've had four. Let me tell you, I paid out of pocket. <laughs> they were out of my insurance network and I did it for a reason. And they were all big, you know, what's okay. They all thought they had the they were just smarter than God. And they'd look at their work and they'd think how brilliant it was. And they'd admire, they'd admire the, the x-ray photos afterwards and say, look at, the, look at the beautiful work, Christine. This is art. It's art. And I'd say, you know what? Thank you. Have a nice day. I'm glad it's all done. Do I want to be your best friend? No. Would I date you? No. Would I want you to be, but do I want you working on my neck and working on my brain? You know, to yes, because yeah. you're one of the best in the country. So there we go again, right? With what is important and what matters. That matters to me more than having a really super kind, nice doctor who's working on something that's very sensitive in my body. Mm-hmm. And they were only hired because they're black or they're whatever color they are. Yes. Trans, so the argument for gay. merit, merit over inclus- there you go. inclusivity. Yeah. There you go. Yes. Merit over inclusivity. I think that's a good that's argument. Part, no, that's the perfect way to say it. One, not to, not to derail, but, but to, this is kind of a non sequitur, but I wanted to go back to one thing before, cause I know we have to wrap up really soon. There was one more comment that I wanted to read out since we were on the topic of education. Yes. 
and um, and children in schools. And yes. Jim Moses said, my teenagers laugh at all this woke BS and mock anyone in their class. Call, uh, call them a Karen if they embrace the woke nonsense. I'm heartened hearing them speak about it. They smell the BS. And I, I kind of just wanted to um, address that because that's one of the things that I've wondered is when are our kids going to get to the point where they see this being fed to them. Kids have a rebellious instinct and it's part differentiation and rebelling against the status quo is a part of development. And so at some point are the kids going to, are we going to get a new red guard? Are we gonna have the rainbow guard as you say, Carib? Yeah. Or are we going to see kids start to push back? And, okay, so and what's that gonna look like? So this is, this is huge and you have to realize that this is what's going on. The Title IX protections are going to target those kids. It is absolutely a fact that most kids, most boys for sure, recognize that this is a bunch of garbage. Most boys and a lot of girls, including a lot of gay and lesbian kids, they're like, we're being used and we don't like it. Title IX, though, is going to change that. Kids can go to detention. I've recently interviewed a father whose son went to detention because somebody accused them of doing something, even though there's literally no proof of the, of the person doing it, that detention is in school. And then they are made to watch training videos on why they need to respect pronouns, why they need to do this. So while the kids may laugh and call it BS and behind closed doors, it takes one infiltrator in your group. And that's the thing is these kids are being taught to be little activists. Well, that's interesting because that seems like that that could directly ignite the the rebellious spirit against this in a way. I mean, you start to push back against someone and you're going to create more but, resistance. But when your child gets a record for it, which is what yeah. here in Utah, we have one school that was taken over by the Department of Justice or one district. Hmm. And so when you your serious? kid gets a record, the DOJ. Like, the DOJ runs Davis County in Utah. They're the most closed so, letter agency we have. You, DOJ, so, so here's FBI, the thing. When CIA, I say they're targets, they are targets. And so knowing knowing who I am and what I do, I, I really truly felt like it was not safe for my son to go into school because he will have a target on his back and they are absolutely targeting Christian kids. Hmm. And if you dead name somebody or if you say, you know what, no, thank you that can see you that can see a kid with like an honor roll kid who's never gotten in trouble who just says no no thank you I don't believe in that that can see that child having to have mandatory therapy title title nine hmm. so 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 keep Their your protections are removed kids. basically they have no yes. protections anymore yes the protections are only for the queer kids which will make some kids there's a story about a young woman who um she said you know what no thank you and she was so bullied that now she's the one transitioning <sighs> and that is here in my county because she just wanted to make it stop it, and teachers are empowered to say you know I will only have kindness in my class but that kindness does not go in every direction so I almost wonder if I almost wonder if conservative Christian kids should start wearing a cross on their kind of the way they wore a star and go into school and and use what was done in history and just say this is what you're doing to us mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. are so discriminating against us 
But I do believe that at home, you let your kid be as, you know, absolutely, this is a bunch of garbage as possible because they've got to hold on to their sanity. Do you know what's interesting is that I actually earlier was listening to a podcast and um, they were, somebody came on and brought sort of this chart that showed that as time goes on, people that were Christian and followed kind of the Bible's principles, right? So it's what you were saying earlier, Kara, but it's not just about being Christian, but actually following kind of what the Bible had to say. And so there's this line going this way. And this line under here was like the quality of society in general. Mm -hmm. And as the people devolved into madness and chaos, right, they tended to get further and further and further away from the Bible which is the one, which was this consistent, stable line kind of on this graph that showed that if you continue to follow it, you typically stayed right over here. You know, society typically stayed in, in, in some space, not to say that everybody believes in it or should or not, but we're talking about not bullying people for it, not blaming, not arresting people for it, not, you know, um, punishing them for it, but literally just allowing people to do that. And then you see this sharp decline when we start, when we stop doing that and we become further away from some of those foundational principles. Anyway, I found it very fascinating this morning because um, I hadn't really considered that the Bible portion was what was under attack in such a major way, nor did I really think about the Bible portion as being anchoring in some fashion, some of the values, let's say, not the religion, but the values Hmm. what it brings being very anchoring for society. I didn't really think about that. I have in other ways, family values, but I haven't thought about that particular part of it, which is, you know, controversial, I suppose, but the Bible or readings or teachings, right. It seems like there's a lot, a lot there to discuss some, a lot of variables involved in that. Oh yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's really interesting though. I think the last thing is I, I noticed that Kamala, Kamala, whichever, um, had said some, um, some things about them being the party of love, them being the party of tolerance. Oh gosh. And all of these. How can they even say that at this point? Exactly. They're, they're saying that, you know, we will stand up for all of these things. And that is what, if you just watch CNN, that's what you believe. But I believe it's loving to tell the truth. I do. Mm. And to tell it in love, but like, Mm. you know, if somebody is anorexic, you don't tell them they look beautiful and healthy and keep doing what they're doing. But I also believe that you don't, um, you don't attack anyone. You just, you just don't, but standing up for yourself and not complying is not attacking someone. But when the democratic party or the Democrat party says that they're going to come after anyone who doesn't agree with them under the name of tolerance yeah then we're in a lot of trouble and that is that is a misdirection misinformation whatever you want to call it um but our children they are absolutely on the front lines and the other thing is is that this very much lures them into it because this is the way to be popular and protected yeah yeah and that's the thing it's not tall this isn't tolerating or loving people despite or 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 accepting their differences from some social norm that that's this is absolutely a system of creating and incentivizing that um that change yeah that i mean like 
the the curriculum i still keep coming back to that the parent that came on and showed me a bunch of curriculum that their their kids were being taught in school and it's it's just chock full of trying to incite a certain feeling in the kids try on these identities and then also let's read these vignettes where kids are getting discriminated how do you feel about that don't you want to go and protect the the child who's experiencing discrimination and they're all hypotheticals that are being suggested in order to get a sense of indignation and a sense of righteous allyship out of these children so you're trying to create this feeling and then you're trying to incentivize children with yes with answers and responses that that push them towards adopting these identities because that's what gets them praise. And then if, if we're, we're doing all that behind the scenes and we're, and then over here on this other side, we're saying, well, we just want to be loving and tolerant and accepting of these things. Well, you're, you're, you're creating the very system. So it's, it's this giant farce. That's, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Anyway, no, I know it is. It is absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks What's for the way out. What thanks for forward. what's the way out? Yeah, conversations. I think my gosh. Yes. I think uncovering what's going on is the way out. Like having real conversations about it and just yeah. you know, people are so afraid to be called these names like transphobe or um yes. white supremacist. These words don't mean anything anymore because they're just launched at anybody who has any any dissenting opinion. It's like here's here's the right way to be and then everything else is is what far right transphobic white supremacists it's it's the narrowing of the accept it's like that list of uh, yes. it's okay to disagree or you you can still be friends if you have a disagreement unless it's about all of these things which is basically right. everything in life you know you have to align perfectly or you're you know you're alt-right white supremacist transphobic. And I don't have a problem telling people anymore the truth about why I stopped teaching. I used to be very afraid when people would ask me and come up with some, you know, different answers that were true, but were not the main reason. Somebody asked me at the airport the other day, oh, you know, we found out, I was talking to some people on the same plane that they live close by. Oh, so you were teaching, they were both therapists themselves. Why did you stop? I said, because it's too woke. And I can't hang with that. The whole profession is inside and out and upside down. And I wasn't going to do that anymore. Don't even care who heard me. Don't even care who was sitting right. At this point, I've become very comfortable with just saying it how it is. Good. I'm finding more often than not that people agree, not disagree. This teeny little loud bunch drowns them out. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really great. Just being able to just say it, just speak it. It's not, it's not hateful to have a disagreement mm-hmm. with, you know, a particular ideology, mm-hmm. a, a nuanced Absolutely. take is not hateful. There's nothing Absolutely. negative about you grow that. From it. Sometimes yeah. you'll hear something and you'll go, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I can accept that piece of it. Yes. Usually with the woke, that's not the way I feel, but, <laughs> but sometimes you can at least like, you know, yeah. Um, like, like JFK, you know, you can say things and hear things that you can go. Okay. Well, I I can understand that point, but I absolutely don't understand that. So, Mm -hmm. well, ladies, thank you so much for this great chat. And thanks to everybody who joined us in the, in the chat online and um, we'll do this again soon. Sounds great. Thanks. Thank you.